Um, let me get into the, the message for today. And uh, as I mentioned, we are, we're taking a break from 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be looking at the book of Matthew as we, go, as we talk about Palm Sunday. And then 1 Corinthians, we're continuing on Friday because the next passage in 1 Corinthians is specifically about communion. So how perfect is that? So we are going to be talking about that on Friday. So if you don't want to miss any of the 1 Corinthians series, you got to come out on Friday to our Good Friday service. But today, we're going to be talking about Palm Sunday, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. So um, I'm going to read through this, but one thing that I want to point out along the way as I'm reading Matthew 21 is how, how um, overloaded this passage is with Jesus's self-declaration of his kingship, of the fact that he is Messiah, of the fact that he's God even, that he is the divine Lord. Uh, it, we see it all over Matthew chapter 21, which is it's interesting because when we look through the rest of the Gospels, if you've read through the earlier parts, you might have noticed that oftentimes when Jesus did a miracle, when Jesus cast out a demon, when Jesus healed somebody, he would tell them, shh, don't, don't tell people who I am. Don't, don't announce this. And there's a sense where you've also seen him say, you know, my time has not yet come. But now, as he enters into Jerusalem on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, in Matthew chapter 21, we get this sense of something very different of, of his time is now here, and, and this passage is just filled with loud declarations of who he is, and um, we're, we're going to look at a few of these. So as we go through here, I'm going to stop here and there. In verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, this is uh, the first thing here that we can, we can clearly point to where Jesus is declaring who he is. The prophecy here that Matthew is alluding to is from Zechariah chapter 9, um, verses nine verse 9 here, and where, where he's prophesying where God is saying that he was going to come to the people, that the king was going to come to his people humble and mounted on a donkey. So we see Jesus here when he enters into Jerusalem, very specifically, he rides in on a donkey in fulfillment of what Zechariah said. He's basically declaring that I'm the king. I'm the king that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, and here I am coming to you, coming to my people. In verse 6, it says that the disciples went and did as, as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! 
And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Here as well, when Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 56, verse 7. And in that, in that passage, when Isaiah prophesies, it is God who's speaking. God is the one who's talking about his house, his temple, that it is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. It's God who's speaking. And now, while well, here you can maybe argue that, well, Jesus, maybe he was in the temple and, and flipping over tables and driving out all the money changers because he was very zealous for God's house. I think it can also be argued that Jesus is saying that this is my house, my house, because he is God and he's cleaning out the house. I think there is a very, very strong case that can be made that Jesus here in saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer is declaring again his lordship, that he is God, that this is his house. Then in verse 14, it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, why is that significant? How does that declare Jesus' lordship and who he is? He's been healing people. He's been healing the sick, casting out demons the whole time in his three and a half years of ministry. But the fact that when he came into Jerusalem and he came straight into the temple and he cleared out the temple, but then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, in the house of God, and he healed them is very specific as well. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 35, verses four to six, it talks about God coming. And it says, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What does Isaiah say? He says that God is going to come. He indeed will come to his people. He will save them. You know what's going to happen when he comes? You're going to see the blind eyes opened and you're going to see lame people leaping like a deer. And Jesus comes into the temple and opens the eyes of the blind and he heals the lame so that they can walk and that they can leap like a deer. I think that through his actions right here in the temple, he's also declaring that God indeed has come to you. I have come to you. God is in your presence. He's in your midst right here. And in verse 15, as we continue on, it says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Now, man, this must have really, if, if the religious leaders were indignant before, they must have just um, been losing it now when they hear what Jesus says because Jesus quotes Psalm 8, verse 2. 
here when he says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Because in Psalm 8, verse 2, it's God. It's talking about God as the one who is being worshipped and praised by even little children. So when these kids who are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, about Jesus... When Jesus says that they are fulfilling Psalm 8, verse 2, what Jesus is saying is that they're praising God when they're praising me. And the, the religious leaders must have been pulling their beards out when they heard this. Man, Jesus, he came into Jerusalem with a bang. For somebody who for much of this ministry said, don't tell others, don't tell them what you've seen, don't tell them how you've been healed, now his time has come, and he enters into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, people's cloaks and the palm leaves before him, the children shouting, clearing out the temple, healing the lame and the blind in the temple. He's declaring so loudly that he is king, he is Messiah, he is God, and his time has come. It is now. Make no mistake about it. He is the long-prophesied Messiah, King, and God who would come to his people. Now, here's the thing. If Jesus is being this loud and this clear and this direct with the people and the religious leaders, how, how then did they get it so wrong? How did they get it so wrong? How did they not understand who he was? The crowds crucified him. The religious leaders handed him over to be arrested and tortured and sent him to be crucified. How did they get it so wrong? How did the crowds who were here shouting, Hosanna, praise, Hosanna to the son of David, in just five short days, be the ones shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. How do, we, how do we go from Hosanna to crucify him in such a short amount of time? Two things that I want to point out here. Two reasons why I think these people got it so wrong. Um, and, and I want to warn us and encourage us that we learn from this lest we also get it wrong. When we look at the crowds, I think their problem was they had the wrong expectations of God. When it comes to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the priests, I think their problem was that they had a misunderstanding of God's expectations for them. The crowd had wrong expectations of God. The religious leaders had a misunderstanding of God's expectations for them. What do I mean by that? Let me unpack that a little bit here. When we look at the crowd here and they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. The city was in an uproar. People were thronging about Jesus, giving him the royal welcome, taking their cloaks and throwing them on the ground, kind of like a red carpet before him as he enters into Jerusalem, cutting down palm leaves to cover the ground so that the beast of burden that Jesus rides upon doesn't need to touch the dirt. He walks in on a covered walkway. How did they go from Hosanna to crucify him? Well, I think the, the, the key here 
One of the important things here is the fact that Jesus rode in on a donkey. That he rode in on a donkey. And that is something not to be missed. Because in Zechariah chapter 9, when Zechariah prophesies that the king would ride in on a donkey, what he is saying, what he's talking about, is that the king would come in humbly on an animal, not of war, but an animal of peace. So when when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was saying that he was coming as a humble king, as a lowly king, as a king who came not, not to make war, not to make war with Rome, not to bring about some type of insurrection and rebellion and revolt so that the people of Israel can experience freedom and political autonomy. That's not why he came. He came on an animal of peace. He came on a humble animal, on a humble beast. He came in on a donkey. Now, the people were all cheering as he came in, but they didn't grasp this important key of his identity and of his mission. You see, because what the people wanted was the people wanted a savior. The people wanted a king who would come and make their lives better, specifically and particularly by overthrowing Roman rule. Because the people of Israel had been punted around for centuries now, not not having autonomy over their own country for most of that time, whether it was the Assyrian Empire coming in and and laying waste to Jerusalem and Israel and and, and conquering it, or the, the Babylonian Empire that came after them and ruled over Israel, or after the Babylonians, then came the, the Medes and the Persians that ruled them. And then after the Medes and the Persians came Alexander the Great, busting in from Greece into the, into the Middle East and taking over Israel and that area. And then after Alexander the Great, his, his empire crumbled and it broke into four different empires. One of those four empires, the Seleucid Empire, was the one that was now in charge of Israel. And then Israel um, uh, threw off Seleucid rule for a while, but then guess who came knocking? The Romans. Again and again and again, the people of Israel were conquered and did not have political freedom. The Romans were in charge during this time. That's why even though they had the temple, they had the high priest, they had their their king, quote unquote, who was really in charge? Pilate. Pilate, the Roman designee. Rome, Caesar, they were the ones truly in charge. And, And what the people wanted and why they were so excited about Jesus is because they wanted him to be the king and the Messiah who they thought Oh, what he's going to do is he's going to come and fix this situation of ours and bring about freedom. He's going to lead us in a rebellion, and we are going to overcome. I mean, if the guy healed the sick, he cast out demons, even raised Lazarus, people from the dead, surely he can send fireballs out of his eyes and consume the Roman garrisons here in Jerusalem. That'll be easy for him. No problem. That's what they're expecting. That's what they wanted. Now, I, I think... There, there's further evidence of this when we, when we look at what happened under this Seleucid Empire. If you remember your, your history during this time, there was something that happened. The Seleucid Empire was particularly um, harsh in its control of Israel. And eventually, uh, the Israelites, the people of Israel revolted. And that was called the Maccabean Revolt back in the 160s BC, if you remember this from your history. 
And, um, and, and they went out and, and they revolted and they actually gained their independence for about 100 years through this revolt. And it says this in, uh, in the first letter to the Maccabees. Now, this is not, not scripture, uh, but we take this as something that we learn from historically. It says this in the first letter, chapter 13, verse 51. On the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews entered it, it being Jerusalem, with praise and palm branches, and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, and with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. And now, once again, as they're under the thumb of an occupying force, they come and they see Jesus and they they grab those palm branches once again. They lay them down before him and they're saying to him, Jesus, do it again. Do it again. Come on, man. Fix our nation. Fix our lives. Look at how difficult things have become living under the Romans Come and lead a rebellion and make our life better. That was what they expected from Jesus. So, um, I'm sure it was quite surprising for his disciples who were probably thinking this when Jesus got arrested. And maybe they thought, oh, he got arrested. Now, now it's on. Okay, Jesus, they forced our hand. Now the rebellion's going to begin what does Peter do? He pulls out his sword, cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, right? He thinks, it's on, it's game time. Here we go, rebellion starts. But then Jesus tells him to put away his sword. He tells him to put away his sword, to not fight, to stand down. And Jesus gets arrested. He gets tortured. His disciples look at this and say, this is not what we signed up for. And they all run off. And then Jesus eventually gets crucified. He gets killed. He gets murdered upon a wooden cross. That was not what the people expected. Friends, Jesus, he he did come into Jerusalem. He did enter into Jerusalem in that final week to make battle against a great enemy. But that enemy was not Rome. Rome was, that was nothing. He came to do battle against a far greater enemy. That enemy was sin. Sin. Something that that people for generations, for centuries and millennia did not know. We're looking forward. The people of God were looking forward to one day. How would God forgive us of our sins? so that we can be forgiven and we can enter into relationship with God. How would God do that? They did not understand that. Jesus came to come and vanquish that enemy. After thousands of years, he came to sacrifice himself upon a cross to give his own life, to die for us so that we could have peace with God. That was his mission. That was the enemy that he was really fighting. You know, when the people shouted, Hosanna! I don't think they realized what they were shouting. When you look at Psalm 118, we see here in verse 25 when it says, Save us! We pray, O Lord, save us there is Hosanna. It's the same word. It's where it comes from. Hosanna! Save us, God! The people wanted 
Jesus to save them. Save us from Rome. You can do it. But they didn't realize, they forgot that verse 25 is deeply connected with verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A verse that Jesus quoted to refer to himself in his own ministry, his own purpose, that he would be rejected. He would be arrested. He would be tortured. He would be crucified, rejected even by his own disciples who abandoned him and ran away from him. He would be rejected and sacrificed so that he could save us. So that Hosanna, Hosanna, we could be saved from our sins. Brothers and sisters, the question is this. Here's the thing. Here's the challenge. If we we don't understand this, that, that this is the heart of what Jesus came to do during that Good Friday week, that Passion Week, if we don't understand that Jesus came to vanquish sin in our lives, not to not to make everything in this world problem-free. Not to get rid of Rome. That's not the purpose of him coming. He didn't come to make our lives materially and physically better. That was not his primary goal. If we don't realize that, brothers and sisters, we could be this close from turning on Jesus as well. Just like the crowds. Quick, fast. We're all good with Jesus as long as he's doing something about Rome, as long as he's making my life better, as long as my life is kind of on track. But what if things go horribly off track? What if things go down a drain in your life? Do you have a price where you would turn on Jesus as well, just like these crowds? Brothers and sisters, if, you know, It's hard to tell sometimes, but if we examine our heart, we have to be careful because maybe deep down inside, in our heart, we have this thought, we have this belief that if I follow Jesus, my life will be good, my life will get better, or the inverse, God won't let my life get really bad. He won't let it get really off track. No, no, no. God wouldn't do that. If that's there, brothers and sisters, I propose to you that that danger of turning on Jesus does exist. The question is, how much pressure needs to be put upon you, whether by the world, the brokenness of this world because of sin, by the devil, or by other people before you turn on him as well? Are you living with a sort of prosperity gospel mentality or prosperity gospel light in your own life that expects God is supposed to make my life better. So what happens? What happens when your life doesn't get better? What happens when certain prayers don't get answered? What happens when life doesn't go according to plan? We have some of these expectations within us. I think as a parent within me, there is this kind of expectation underneath the current that my kids are going to have a good life. They're going to have good opportunities. 
God's going to make things smooth for them. But I have to be careful. What if that doesn't happen? What if my kids struggle? What if they don't have the same opportunities as other people? Will I then question God's love and who he is and if he is good in my life? What if you're not able to have a meaningful career? What if because our, our economy is an economy that is invented and run by people who are sinners and we live in a world that is broken and infected by sin, the economy doesn't go well and you get laid off and your career gets off track. Would that, is that your price? Would that be enough for you to question God and wonder if he is good and possibly turn on him? Is your price maybe your love life? As long as I get married, I'm okay. But what if, what if that's a long time in coming? What if it never comes? Would that be your price? And then turning from God or being bitter at him. Maybe internally deep inside it says, God, yeah, I know. Um, uh, we all get sick. We all die but not cancer, not at my age. I expect to live to about 85 and yeah, maybe a little bit of back pain, maybe a slip disc or something like that, a little crink in the neck, maybe a few extra moles that wasn't expecting or something like that. That's okay, but, but not cancer, not at a young age. Is that your price? What would it be that would make you say that this Jesus is not who I expected him to be. Is the God not good because those things happen in your life? Our, our, our beloved, dear Pastor Eddie Kim, pastor of Canvas City Church in Philadelphia, our, our sister AMI Church, is God not good because he has terminal stomach cancer at a young age in his, in his 50s with a year and a half left to live? Is God not good? Should he turn on him? Is God not good because even if the chemotherapy works, his life expectancy is increased then to two and a half or three years because it's still terminal? And only a, heal, a miracle from God will save him and allow him to live longer. Is God not good? Is, is that his price? Should he turn on God? By the grace of God, he's not turning on God, but he's trusting in the Lord and he is staying faithful and trusting that God is good no matter what, even in the face of death. Brothers and sisters, do you have a price? Do you have a price where you would turn from God and go from Hosanna, praise? You could be in here this week just singing praise God, singing along with our awesome worship team, but could there be things that come in your life that would make you instead say, crucify him? This is not the life that I signed up for. What would that be for you? Now, you, you hear that. We, we may say like, gosh, then, you know, why, why does God let these things happen then? If God is God, why this, this cancer? Why this uh, being laid off? Why these problems with my kids? Why are there all, is there all this brokenness in this world? Well, let me, let me tell you this. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, it was as a humble king who came to give his life. But Jesus will come again a second time. He will. 
And let me read to you a description of what it's going to be like when he comes the second time from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus will come again. But the second time he comes will not be on a donkey, humbly to be arrested, tortured, and crucified. He will come as the conquering king and his enemies will be cast forever into this eternal sea of fire, into the eternal hell. And those who call upon the name of Jesus will enter into the new heavens and the new earth to spend eternity in joy with God. He will come again to rule. But between then and now, what is God doing? Why? What is happening during this time? Well, 2 Peter tells us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. What is happening now? God is waiting patiently, wanting to give the world a chance to repent before he returns that second time on that white horse with a drawn sword with the armies of heaven behind him. He is giving the world a chance to repent and to be on his side, to be on his team. He is telling us as the church to go into the world and tell the world that there is still time to repent because the Savior who came in humility and was sacrificed, was crucified, will come again in conquering victory. And when he does, you want to be on his team. Until that time comes, brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is filled with brokenness. We live in a world where, where as we live in it, God did not come to promise us a comfortable life if you believe in him. It's the exact opposite. Jesus said that if you follow me, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. It's an invitation to follow a man with a target on his back. That's what it is to be a Christian. Don't be fooled by the fact that we live in in a country that has a Judeo-Christian background for the past 200 years, but that's changing. And the normative experience of Christians throughout the ages is suffering, is sacrifice, is taking up their cross and following after the Lord Jesus. Friends, when, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, Rome was in charge When Jesus left the earth and went up into heaven, Rome was still in charge. He didn't change that. But you know what happened? Eventually, in a few short couple hundred years, Christianity conquered Rome. 
led by the blood of the martyrs through much suffering. But the gospel conquered Rome. He didn't come to take Rome away. He came to bring about transformation in our lives, to be able to live as a servant of God in the midst of Rome. And if we don't understand that, we could be this close from going from Hosanna to crucify him. Brothers and sisters, what are your expectations of God? Do you understand who he is in your life? The crowds didn't, and they crucified Jesus a few days later. The religious leaders here, they also had a misunderstanding. Their misunderstanding that I want to point out is what God expected of them. They had a misunderstanding of what God expected of them. And and I want to highlight here, especially when when Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, this second part, when he says, but you make it a den of robbers. What does Jesus mean by that? Now, very superficially, we could say, well, Jesus went into the temple and the temple was there and there were these people selling these animals at exorbitant prices. They were price gouging poor pilgrims who came from far away to Jerusalem and they couldn't bring an animal all the way with them to sacrifice. So they had to come here and buy an animal and they were price gouging them and they had unfair weights and scales, unjust weights, and they were ripping people off. You could say that this was a den of robbers, the temple, but I think there's a lot more to it than that. When we look at Jeremiah, at the verse he's quoting, and we look at the context, look at the context here, what Jeremiah says when he prophesies in behalf of the Lord. It says this, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered! We are saved! (laughs) Hosanna! only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. What's happening here? I think this is a lot more, this is about a lot more than just price gouging. This is about and this is an indictment from Jesus of their religious system that was going on, especially led by the Pharisees and the priests at the time. How so? What's happening here? In Jeremiah, God is saying, look, you're going to go out there and you're going to steal, kill, commit adultery. You're going to lie. You're going to worship other gods. You're going to do all that stuff. And then you're going to come into the temple And because you think you have the temple, you're safe from judgment. You're safe from other armies coming and conquering Israel because you're going, we got the temple. We got, it's like, you know, when kids play tag, I'm in base. I'm safe. You can't do anything to me. You think because of this temple, you can go and do these, you can sin and you can live this life. And then you come into the temple and you feel like you're okay and judgment won't come. 
you're fooling yourself. You're turning this place into a den of robbers. What's a den of robbers? A den of robbers is a place where robbers, after doing bad things outside, they come into the den and they feel safe. They do bad things outside of the den and then they come into the den and they feel safe. Ah, we're in our den. We're okay. And I think what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders here, and it's an indictment against Israel here, is that this is what you've done. This is what you've done. This is what you think. You think this is okay. That as long as you come and you offer these sacrifices and you make the temple look nice and pretty and as you offer incense and you do these different things, you can be out there lying, fornicating, swearing falsely, murdering, hating people in your heart, lusting. You could be doing all those things and you think that God's okay with it. It's like it's a perverse social contract that they've made with God in their hearts, right? You know, like we hear about social contracts in this world between like governments and, and their people, right? And, and some of them are, are not great, right? So like the government's like, hey, you know, you, you know, you, we will make you rich and well-fed and you'll be very, very comfortable, but just let us wield authoritarian dictatorship power and do shady things as well and let bygones be bygones, right? Like some kind of weird uh, shady social contract. We can do that with God as well, can't we? Say, Lord, as long as I, I come into your house, I come to church a few times, maybe even pretty regularly. If I pray before my meals, if I, if I don't go out there and hurt people, if I don't break the law, if I'm a generally good citizen, if I read my Bible once in a while, if I come to church on Easter, as long as I do these things, then it doesn't really matter what I do with the rest of my life. You'll leave that part alone. I can pursue other idols. I can make my career, make money, make other people my idols. I could bow down to them. My life can be about these other things and God, we're okay. I'm safe because we have this understanding. But Jesus comes into the temple and he flips the tables and he says that no, that is not God's expectation of you. God's expectation of you is that your entire heart, all of you belongs to the Lord. It's like Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler when the rich young ruler comes to him and says, teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, keep the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. And the young man says, Jesus, I've done all these things. I've kept all these laws. What else do I need to do? And Jesus says, oh, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And it says that the young man walked away sad. Why did Jesus do that? Is that harsh? No. Jesus looked into his heart and he saw that for all of his religious observance on the outside, his heart did not belong to God. And he said, if you really want to follow me, go lay down this idol of wealth and comfort in your life. Surrender it. Follow me. Then you can be my disciple. God is not looking for us to 
do a few religious acts, even, even coming to church, even reading your Bible, God wants your whole heart, all of you. But brothers and sisters, if that's the case, are, are there places in your heart where you would say, God, this far, but no farther. And if God were to want to enter into those places in your heart as well, he'd be crossing a red line where maybe you would turn on him or shout, crucify him as well. We do this all the time, right? Maybe, maybe some of you are here in this church and one of your primary reasons of being here is you want to make friends. <laughs> you want to have a, a nice social life with other Christians. And hey, that's great. I hope you have that too. I hope you can enjoy that here. But, but what if God were to begin to use other people to point out flaws or sins in your life and things were to begin to come out and God were to use the community and to say, hey, this is painful, but I want you to change. I want the church to be an instrument of change in your life. I want you to be able to be open and confess what's going on in your heart and people are going to love you and it may be painful at times, but through that love, you will be transformed. Would you say, no, 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 no. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Thank you. I've had enough fun here. I'll go to another church, meet some other people where we won't go deep. And and I'm satisfied with that. Where are those lines in your heart? Do you have a false understanding of God's expectations of you? Do you have a false sense of security because you come to church or you do some religious things or you give some money? The end result was the Pharisees They led the way in sending Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. If you have, and and I know that this takes real introspection. If there is some social contract that you've made in your heart with God, a false one, I beg of you, examine your heart. Examine your heart. I have to examine mine. God, what if... What if all that I do as a pastor, what if I fail? What if I fail? What if, what if the church implodes? What if nobody respects me anymore as a pastor? What if what I've poured my life into and, and how I've, everything that I've done, people look at me and they say, oh, Ulysses, at the end of the day, he couldn't hack it. He wasn't a good pastor and I, and I don't have the respect of people. Would I then say, God, you violated your contract with me? I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm walking away from you. Are there things in your heart, social contracts that are there, that Jesus needs to come into your heart and just flip some tables out of love? Out of love. He says, no, all of you belongs to me. All of you belongs to me. And and, and he means for us to move beyond this type of superficial religion to a place where his house in our heart truly becomes a house, a heart of prayer, of genuine intimacy and relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, the, the blind, the, the ironic thing is the blind and the lame recognized Jesus. These children recognized Jesus, but the, the crowds And even the religious leaders didn't recognize who he was. If if you're 
If, if your expectations are that God has come into your life to make your life materially better, if that's your expectation of him, brothers and sisters, your expectations are not too high. They're too low. They're too low. God came to transform your life. God came to enable you through the power of his Holy Spirit to live a life of contentment, power, transformation, even under the thumb of Rome, even in the midst of a broken world, even in the face of cancer, even in the face of barrenness, even in the face of singleness, even in the face of being laid off, unemployment, God came to make you a conqueror because of his Holy Spirit who lives within you. That is what God came to do. Not to make you dependent upon sunshine and rainbows outside or else you can't experience happiness, but to make you a warrior who can take up your cross and follow after him and rejoice at the day when Christ comes in the fullness of his glory with the armies of heaven as a conquering king. Brothers and sisters, I want to invite the worship team up at this time as well. This week, we remember the cross. What Jesus came to do during Passion Week. And as the Apostle Paul said, though outwardly we are wasting away because our bodies get sick, because we live in this broken world, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That is what Christ came to do. Brothers and sisters, Rome may still be in charge, but sin no longer is. That's what Jesus came to do. Do you have a price? Is there a price on your heart at which you would turn from God? I want to close with another quote from C.S. Lewis's uh, The Screwtape Letters. If you hear the other week, I, I quoted from this. It's a a fictional account of a, an older demon, Screwtape, giving advice to a younger demon, his nephew Wormwood, about how to stumble Christians. And the older demon, uh, Screwtape, says this to his nephew. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will, the enemy being God, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. That's what the power of the Holy Spirit within us enables us to be people who are faithful, carrying the cross of Christ, living under the thumb of Rome, but being renewed day by day by day. Brothers and sisters, let's stand together and as we, as we worship the Lord even right now, as we sing praises unto God, my hope is that we can sing with a slightly clearer understanding of who Jesus is, 
that we praise him not because he makes our lives smooth and perfect, but we praise him because he is God. He is Messiah. He is Lord. As we fast this week, may we fast, may, may one of the prayers of our heart, of our fast, one of the cries of our heart be, Lord, help me to know you for who you are. Help me to follow you. Not because you can make my life better or fix it, but because you are king. Because you transformed me inwardly and enabled me to walk with you. God, we, we pray, Lord, that as we worship you today and as we worship you right now, would you refine and purify our worship? God, help us, Lord, to declare with a greater purity and clarity who you are as we praise you, O oh Lord, and to see you as you truly are. To declare in the midst of, Lord God, if there are people here, they're going through layoffs, if they're going through uh, sickness, if they're going through worldly hopes that have not been met, Lord God, I pray that you give them the power to praise, to scream and shout, Hosanna, but truly, but truly, because you are good in spite of the brokenness of the world around us. Help us to worship you with a pure and understanding heart.